and welcome. We are back with another episode of Positively Pro-Life podcast featuring another wonderful guest. Positively Pro-Life is brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation and aims to bring you inspirational stories and conversation, important legislative updates, and informative interviews as we seek to restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm your host, Ramel Tenney, the Education Director at the Federation, and joining me is our very own Legislative Director, Maria Gallego. Welcome, Maria. Thank you so much, Ramel. It's great to be with you today. I'm very excited for this podcast, and it's amazing that uh, we get to meet our guest. Uh, I'm meeting him for the first time, but I've heard so many good things. Our guest for today's interview is a five-state Philadelphian conservative columnist who is not afraid to share her views in public forums and social media. People love her, people hate her, but either ways, she continues to capture her audience with her written words. Christine Flowers is here with us today to talk about life, writing, and why she's pro-life. But before we meet our guest, let's hear the legislative update from Maria. Remmel, here is part of a letter to Congress that came from National Right to Life. With the 2022 landmark ruling in the Dobbs versus Jackson Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe versus Wade, the court held that the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. This decision returns the abortion issue to Congress and the state legislatures. Ensuring that taxpayer dollars do not fund abortions continues to be one of the Right to Life movement's top congressional priorities for the 118th Congress. We write to you to thank you for your support of the basic principle that tax dollars should not fund abortion. National Right to Life, on behalf of our affiliates in each of the 50 states and the District of Columbia and more than 3,000 local chapters, urges you to number one, retain the long-standing pro-life appropriations amendments, including the Hyde Amendment, in this year's appropriations. Number two, work to enact H.R. 7 S62, the No Taxpayer Funding for Abortion Act of 2023, sponsored by Representative Smith and Senator Wicker. Three, continue to push back on the numerous aggressive steps taken by the Biden administration to circumvent the clear congressional intent regarding the prohibitions of taxpayer-funded abortion. After Roe versus Wade was handed down in 1973, various federal health programs including Medicaid, simply started paying for elective abortions. On September 30, 1976, an amendment was enacted, authored by pro-life Congressman Henry Hyde of Illinois, to prevent federal Medicaid funds from paying for abortions. And we'd like to thank National Right to Life for reaching out to Congress to help stop the travesty of taxpayer funding of abortion. Remmel. Thanks, Maria, for that update. It's so timely. Now, for this week's inspiration, I want to share with you the story of a young woman, Maggie Lynn. I came across her interview on a talk show, and she shares about her experience of being in foster care. She was in foster care for close to a decade, but after aging out and realizing that she didn't have any support system, she founded Foster Nation to help others like her who leave foster care system when they turn 18. 
Now, during the interview, she said, we really want the youth and young people we work with to know that there are people in the world that care about them. We all have the power to be better than the circumstances we are born into. And I went and listened to her story of her childhood. Uh, she was a, she's a first generation immigrant who came here when she was eight years old and was quickly put into uh, foster care because of some domestic abuse situation. And after listening to her story, I have so much respect for her because those words, you know, we all have the power to be better than the circumstances we are born into. Those words couldn't be truer about any other person when, when you listen to her story. Um, so our inspiration this week is Maggie Lynn, founder of Foster Nation, who rose above her circumstances and continues to help others do the same. So I would encourage you all to maybe go and see what she does. Uh, if you know of people who would like to help, please go and, uh, um, and find some inspiration there. And with that, we move on to our guest interview. Christine Flowers is a Philadelphian attorney and syndicated columnist. She effortlessly weaves in politics, culture, faith, and life issues in her writing. And her columns have been featured in prominent newspapers. She's a unique conservative voice in the media, and we are so glad to have her on our podcast. Welcome, Christine. Oh, Ramel Maria, I am so honored to, um, first of all, to, to meet both of you. Um, I admire you so much. I admire so deeply the work um, that the Pro-Life Foundation is doing in, in Pennsylvania, particularly now the voices of the, the wonderful men and women who work for the foundation are necessary, um, particularly with the, the political landscape that we're dealing with in, um, in my beloved Pennsylvania, where I was raised where I have lived for the past 60 and a half years. I'm 61, so I spent a couple of months in Baltimore. I was born in Baltimore, but don't hold that against me. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a Pennsylvanian Philadelphian born and, born and bred. And um, I, I'm just so happy that there are, and particularly women's voices that are out there advocating for life because we're so often misrepresented by the mainstream media which seems to want to be able to appropriate the voices of women solely for the abortion rights movement, the pro-abortion movement, the pro-choice, call it whatever you want. It's a movement that supports the destruction of innocent unborn human life. And I, I don't care about labels. You can call it whatever you want, but we know what it truly is. And so I'm always very grateful when I, I hear strong women. And there are so many of us, you just... We don't always have the opportunity to get the um, the platforms and the the bullhorns and the ability to get that message across. But we are legion. We are out here. And uh, again, I'm honored to meet both of you. And thank you for having. Um, speaking of strong women, I think you have been a voice crying out in the desert for quite a number of years. And so I think we will start with asking you: When did you first start writing? I first started writing, <laughs> writing for a newspaper. I mean, I was writing at the age of seven. I was sending these little things to my local newspaper and, oh, God bless them. They printed them, uh, my little poems and, and things. But I really started writing for an audience in uh, 2002. And that was when I started writing columns for the Philadelphia Daily News. 
there was a wonderful editor, a stealth conservative at the the Daily News, because the Daily News and the Inquirer, their sister, the sister paper, are it's no secret that they have a very liberal editorial orientation. Um, and this particular editor was someone who was looking for more conservative voices. And I have been a conservative voice since I knew what being a conservative was and probably at the age of 10 or 11. And he asked me if I would write a bi-week, uh, a bi-monthly column. So every two weeks I would write something. And it, it was, I often wrote about abortion because that's something that has been, if not um, the, it, well, let me put it this way. There is nothing that matters to me more than the dignity of unborn human life. And to me, this is the single most important human rights initiative of our time. And I say that being an immigration attorney who practices um, asylum law, and I deal with human rights violations all the time. And Remo, when you were talking about that, that wonderful inspiration and that quote that we are better than the circumstances into which we are born, that rang so true to me. I don't want to sort of make a detour here, but very quickly, yesterday, I represented an individual from Pakistan who was very vocal in his opposition to the Taliban. Um, we think of the Taliban as, as being predominantly um, Afghanistan, but there is a very strong uh, Taliban network in Pakistan. And this individual was a very vocal opponent of the Taliban in Pakistan. And one of the reasons was because he believed that little girls had a right to be educated. Women had a right to hold jobs outside of the home. And because of his, uh, his advocacy and his, his beliefs, he, he's a devout Muslim, but a, an, a Muslim who believes that each human creature has dignity. And because of that, his life was threatened. Um, he received many threats, very credible threats to his life from the Taliban, and he was forced to flee. And I'm happy to say, that a very smart immigration judge granted his uh, application for asylum yesterday. But that just reinforces my belief that every single life matters. And we cannot say that we're for women's rights. You know, you have all of these groups that say they're fighting for women's rights, right, right to education, um, right to be able to uh, do the jobs that you want, enter the professions that you want, live where you want, have voices. If we don't recognize that supporting abortion negates every other advocacy that we do, because if we say that a woman has the unilateral right to silence the voices of unborn women, then we're hypocrites. And that's what I was thinking about yesterday when the judge granted this um, very brave man asylum because he was fighting for the rights of women, young women. And so it, it brings it full circle. So to get back, to answer the question that I just went, you know, completely across the country to answer, you know, <laughs> I went in a completely different direction. I started writing mostly because I was, I was talking about my immigration work, but I wove in the abortion issue as well, because it's, it's all of a piece, um, human rights. Yeah. 
And how did you come to hold those pro-life beliefs? Well, <clears throat> I was baptized a Catholic. I am a practicing Catholic. I am very proud uh, on both sides of the family. I had an Irish daddy and an Italian mommy. And uh, I am deeply, deeply steeped in the ethos and philosophy of life that I was taught at St. Mary's Academy and then Ancilla Domini Academy and then Marian Mercy Academy. I went to three different Catholic girls schools. I went to uh, Bryn Mawr College, which you know, is sectarian. Then I went to Villanova Law School where there were Augustinian priests. And I also taught at Villa Maria Academy. So I have a lot of Catholic girls school cred. And <laughs> so I would say my religion, uh, absolutely. Also <clears throat> my work again in asylum law and human rights has just reinforced my belief that unless you stand up for those who have no voice and the most innocent and the most vulnerable in society are unborn children, unless you do that, you really are not living what I say, what I believe is, is the Christian ideal, the Christian belief that, um, you know, I, I, I just, I, I believe that we are vouchsafed the right to speak for those who are not able to speak, but who are valuable human beings. And I remember Roe versus Wade, I already told you that I'm 61, so I'm not, I'm not giving away any secrets. Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973 and I was 11. Um, I had not yet turned 12. And I remember at that time, I really didn't know what abortion was. I, I had a general idea of what it was, but I didn't know really the, in, the entire, the gruesome nature of the procedure. And I use gruesome advisedly because to me, that's what it is. I, I use a lot of words. I know if you follow me on Twitter or on Facebook, uh, I can be pretty in your face about my beliefs about abortion. I don't like to sugarcoat things because I think once you start doing that, you you dilute the uh, the power of your message and you're letting other people feel a little bit better about their support for what I believe is one of the greatest human rights violations if not the greatest human rights violation of our of our current time of our present time and so as a 13 as an 11 year old and with very strong nuns who were teaching me i realized that abortion was the destruction of potential and as remel mentioned we are better we are better than the circumstances, than, than the worst circumstances that we have lived through. And unless we're given that right to be born, no one will ever know the potential and the greatness that lies within so many of us. Um, and then 
as I started studying biology, I was a language major, but obviously I had to take biology and um, I managed to avoid chemistry, thank goodness. <laughs> but I took biology and um, natural sciences. And there's no getting away from the fact that abortion kills a human being, a human life. Um, it's It might make abortion rights activists feel better to call it a fetus, which is the medical term, but it dehumanizes, it takes away the spirit, the soul, the individuality of this human creature to call it a fetus. It's like, it's a liver, it's a kidney, it's a fetus. That fetus is a human child, uh, a baby. And I took biology and I, I know exactly what the stages and the developments uh, in a pregnancy are. And I know that, um, well, first of all, late term abortion, partial birth abortion is the greatest horror that I've ever read about, um, studied, understood in its fullest capacity. Um, I come from Philly and we have the very sad, um, I guess, um, notoriety of being home to Kermit Gosnell. And Kermit Gosnell ran the largest butcher mill um, in the history of, in the modern history of abortion. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, abortion needs to remain legal so that women will not be subject to, uh, again, the, the type of medical mishaps or any kind of danger to their own, to their own health. Gosnell flourished under a regime of legalized abortion, under a regime in Pennsylvania that looked the other way because of pressures from Planned Parenthood and the organized abortion rights movement. And so to say that abortion must be legal in order to protect the rights and the health of women is, is laughable if it weren't so tragic because there were women who died under the knife of Kermit Gosnell. Not just thousands and thousands and thousands of babies, but mothers as well. So to answer that question again, my beliefs derive from my faith, from science, from my legal practice and common sense. <laughs> I like that. I like that last one as well <laughs> um, that you included it. Um, well, my next question would be, what is one thing you wish people understood about being pro-life? I wish that they understood that we love women. We love the power that women have to create life. This, this whole idea that we're anti-woman is a fallacy that was necessary that they had to create in the abortion rights movement because otherwise they would never be able to justify this act which terminates human life. They know it, we know it, everyone knows it. They can dance around the reality of it, but the reality is women are poorly served by abortion. 
there are, and I'm not even just talking about the, the, the legions of women who had abortions and are suffering psychologically, are, are, are emotionally scarred, wish they had had options, wish they had not been forced into having abortions. I'm, I'm talking about all of the women that will never be born. All of the, 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 the great thinkers, the, the painters, the sculptors, the lawyers, the judges, the doctors, the, the adventurers, the actors, all of these wonderful, wonderful creatures of God that we will never know that are going directly to heaven, which is wonderful for them, but not for us. We have a right to be touched by their greatness. And so I wish that people understood that we pro-lifers love all of humanity and have a very special place in our hearts for women. Definitely. You have such a wonderful presence on Twitter. And I'm wondering what advice do you have for pro-life advocates for using social media to the best advantage? I think social media, for all of its dark uh, aspects, dark underside, is a powerful tool for the person who is, let's say, not um, publicly uh, aligned with uh, a pro-life organization, someone who can't go and stand in front of Planned Parenthood and pray, someone who may live in an area that is extremely blue and feels intimidated doing any kind of face-to-face -face advocacy. I live in Philadelphia, I'm not intimidated, but I know a lot of people who reach out to me privately and they say, I'm pro-life, I live in Philly, I'm afraid of the blowback to my family if I if I you know go to a, a, a pro-life march or if, if I stand in front of Planned Parenthood. What they can do though, and even if they do it anonymously, is they can get the pro-life message out there. They can retweet your tweets. They can retweet the tweets of Lila Rose. They can read of, of prominent, prominent pro-life activists. And that it, 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 it's incremental. It doesn't matter if you have 10 followers or 10,000 followers. If you can um, repeat an important message, you don't know who it's going to get out to. You don't know who it's going to reach. When I write a column, my column appears in the uh, Delaware County Sunday Times. It used to appear in the Inquirer and the Daily News. I was a little bit too pro-life for them, but that's okay. Now it's syndicated, meaning that it's picked up that that small newspaper in my hometown, Delaware County, it, it appears there. And in increasing blue Delaware County, it's not that welcome, that message, but then it gets picked up and it gets reprinted in California and in Alaska and Texas and Western Pennsylvania and the Midwest. And I get a lot of, of feedback from people that I will never meet in my life, but who share that, that vision and those principles and values with me. Tweeting, Facebook, Instagram is the same way. Tweeting is really powerful because you have to distill your message down to whatever, 140 or 280 characters. And so you have to be, you have to get to the heart of it. And people really don't like to read through all of these, you know, preambles. They want, what do you think? 
How do you feel? How are you trying to advance your message? What have you? And you can do it through tweeting. So I would say just be fearless. And if you don't want to put your name to it, that's fine. The message is more important than the messenger. I'm pretty sure you're used to a lot of the cancel culture, both on media and I guess it, it, it started in person, but now the media has just inflated that. So uh, what's your take on today's cancel culture? Well, cancel culture is, I call it cowardice. I call it the cowardice culture, because if you're canceling someone, it means that you have no good rebuttal that you're not either smart enough or courageous enough to present your own response to someone who says, I don't like what you're saying. I'm, I'm, I'm offended. I'm offended. I'm not offended by anything except censorship. Well, I mean, I'm offended by a lot of stuff, but I can deal with that. And the way I deal with that is coming right back and saying, I think you're wrong. And this is why you're wrong. I'm offended when people are deplatformed, when their voices are silenced. I mean, we were just talking about being voices for the voiceless, for the unborn. Uh, the the pro-life movement is all about having a booming voice, a message, and we get that message out. And cancel culture tries to stop us and, and many other conservatives from getting the message out. And I think it's because it's out of fear. Again, it's cowardice. The people who try and silence you are people who are afraid of your message and they want to stop your message from getting out there and persuading people. Because if they weren't afraid and if they had confidence in their own message, the, the strength and the power of their own words, they would just speak over you. They would speak louder. They would get their message out. But instead they go, oh, we can't hear that. We have to have an echo chamber. And I, you know, I, I'll make you guys laugh. I have been suspended on uh, Facebook, not Twitter as much, ironically. I've been suspended on Facebook um, a number of times. And so what I've done is I've gamed the system. I've just made other profiles with my name, just in a slightly different way. My, my full name is Christine Marie Flowers, okay? so. When I was suspended as Christine Flowers, I opened up an account as Christine Marie. And that lasted for a while. I tweet, I, I Facebooked until my suspension was was over. I ended up, I ended up having about eight different um profiles because they kept figuring out who I was and they kept shutting me down at a certain point. But I'm like Sybil. I have all these different personalities. <laughs> and the other, and of course, you know, I have a different birth date and everything. And the other day, somebody started wishing me happy birthday. My birthday's in December and they were wishing me happy birthday in May. And I'm thinking, why? And I said, oh my goodness. That's right. Christine Marie's birthday is May 12th. <laughs> we're going to have to leave it right there. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for coming on Positively Pro-Life. Thank you so much. I loved it. Much respect for both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Positively Pro-Life is made possible through the generous support of the members of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation all across the Commonwealth. Thank you so much for joining us today. And remember, there is always a reason to choose life.